Welcome to Brain Train. It's the podcast where we get experts into each other. Last episode, Justin Bates depressed us immensely, talking all about the history and current status of English and Welsh housing law. And this episode, he wants to know about the Suez Crisis. So we have Charlotte Riley, who knows about modern British history. And I think I'm going to hand over to Justin and uh, let you start with your first question. OK, well, uh, the first question was was really just, just what happened. And this isn't in some... I'm too lazy to read a book kind of sense. It, it, it's more in the sense of... It's a strange thing to be history to me, because although I, I'm too young to understand it, my grandparents were there for it, they understand it. And I, I'm just interested to know exactly what was going on with the Suez Crisis. And then linked to that is, is why is it so important? Why is it still part of our cultural memory today? OK, great. So, um, I think they're both really, really good questions to ask of the Suez Crisis, because... What happened is not a lazy question at all. It's an incredibly complicated thing. Most people who were involved didn't understand it. Uh, Most people who were involved, even after the event, didn't really understand what had happened. Um, And the question of why it's so important is, I think, really interesting and also quite debatable. I'm not sure um, if everybody would agree why it's so important today. So the first question about what happened in the Suez Crisis is kind of two questions, I think. So first of all, there's a question there about kind of context and background and what led to this situation where this crisis could actually occur. And then there's a kind of the second question, which is actually what happened during the Suez Crisis and why do we call it a crisis? Why is it this crisis in British foreign policy? So with the background, I am um, a resolute modern historian, but you have to go back at least to the end of the 19th century kind of to understand it. So there is a French engineer called Ferdinand de Lesseps who decides that he wants to build a canal through Suez. Um, And initially the British aren't very supportive of this, they think it's a terrible idea, and they try to dissuade people from investing in this canal, but eventually he gets it built um, with uh, support from the Egyptian king and it opens in 1869. Can I just ask a question here? Yes. Just in case people listening don't know, this is in Egypt. Is that why the Egyptian yes. king is involved? This right. is where the king so is Just tell us where so Suez, Suez is. Um, the reason that the Suez Canal is, became so important is because it enables you to get from the Mediterranean to India without having to go around the bottom of Africa. The reason Britain cares about it so much is because you don't have to sail around the Cape of Good Hope which is an incredibly ironic and depressing name when you realise it's a Cape of Good Hope because you need good hope to get around it without dying. So they're very happy to have a canal, it means they can cut that out. So it's in that little bit. bit And this then is, of course, at the time when India is a British possession, so that's why it's important. Absolutely. So India became part of the proper British Empire under the rule of Queen Queen Victoria in 1858. So uh, the region's becoming increasingly important for Britain. So it opens um, in 1869, and initially Britain's not interested. France owns quite a lot of the shares, about 44% of the shares in in the canal, and Egypt owns the rest. But then um, Britain in 1875 buys the shares off the Egyptian government because the Egyptian government is running out of money. So basically, the British government ends up a kind of minority shareholder in this company that runs the canal. Then in 1888... um, No, sorry, in 1882... um, Britain occupies Egypt militarily. So not only do they own a significant chunk of this canal, they also occupy the land in which it's sort of situated. And that's kind of why Britain actually has any interest in this whatsoever. That's why Britain is even involved in Egypt during the Suez Crisis. Then you can kind of fast forward a little bit. So um, 
Egypt becomes independent in 1922. It takes until 1936 for Britain to make any kind of treaty with them or organise any, anything. But in 1936, when they organise the treaty, uh, Britain um, gets the rights to continue owning and kind of using the Suez Canal. And that's quite important for Britain, I guess, well. Is, sorry, is the canal held by a private company at this stage? You, know, you can tell the lawyer in me from to understand how it's all structured. It is, absolutely. It's a, this is why it's so interesting in terms of politics, because... It's half about this kind of territorial control, but it's actually also about all about economics and about the economic and financial control of this company that runs it. This isn't as unusual as it might seem. So India, for example, until 1858, was owned by the East India Company. It's a bit like McDonald's running a country. They collected tax, they had an army and everything. It's, it's actually something that Britain is quite keen to do during its empire because it, it kind of uh, reduces risk for the British government and it's quite profitable. So... Um, Yes, so Britain is kind of, even once Egypt becomes independent, Britain still has these holdings. They have a lot of military presence around the canal and they own part of the company. This is all completely fine until General Nasser and uh, his kind of colleague, uh, sorry, his colleague Naguib overthrow the king of Egypt. Um, Their officers in the Egyptian army, they overthrow, they declare it a republic. Nasser is uh, a nationalist who is uh, incredibly critical of the Egyptian monarchy, but also very critical of Egypt's links with, the, uh, with Britain and with Western powers. He's very anti-imperial. He's also very anti-Israel, which becomes important later. Um, Nasser is a lot less keen than the king of Egypt was to allow Britain to continue this presence in Egypt. And so in 1951... Can I just interpose in there again yes, a minute? Sorry, the, the presence in Egypt. So the presence is owning shares in a company. Yeah. Have we got anything? I say we, but is, is anything yeah. else there at the time? Are there, are there troops there or civilian administrators? Um, there's troops. So Britain has all of their administrators all over the canal and um, lots of people who are involved actually in running it and engineers and things like that. But they also have troops. So in, yes, yeah, so in, um, in 1954, Britain makes this agreement that they'll withdraw, withdraw militarily from Suez. Um, in 1956, but that they will have a kind of dual administration of the canal between the Egyptians and the British for at least five more years after that. So it's a kind of very staggered withdrawal. This is all part of NASA's broader policy. So NASA, being this nationalist and being an anti-imperialist, is becoming more and more important in this kind of pan-African, African-Asian, nationalist, anti-imperialist movement. He's an incredibly charismatic speaker. He's able to kind of get people on side. He's really good at doing that. Britain's also quite concerned around the Suez Crisis because America seems to be getting awfully pally with the Middle East in a way that Britain resents because Britain thinks that Britain has largely informal empire in the Middle East and America really has no business getting involved over there. Um, Anthony Eden, who's the British Prime Minister at this point, is far less... um, far less amenable to the idea of the Anglo-American relationship than previous Prime Ministers Attlee and Churchill have been. He is not particularly concerned with it. He doesn't see it as being particularly important for Britain. And so he doesn't see American power in the Middle East as being a way for Britain to kind of shore up power, as lots of other Prime Ministers would have done. He sees it as competition. And America um, is quite pro-NASA. They have been quite previously quite pro-NASA. The CIA were working with him quite closely before he overthrew the king of Egypt. And 
it's most historians believe that the CIA massively overestimated their own influence with NASA as well. So they thought that they had this person who was on side, and then suddenly he kind of becomes this incredibly anti-Israeli nationalist leader in the Middle East, and they suddenly realise maybe he's not quite so pro-American as they thought. But it suits NASA for the Americans to think, obviously, that he's kind of a helpful ally. And Britain is trying to shore up their own position in the Middle East with something called the Baghdad, Baghdad Pact, um, where they uh, join a group of um, Middle Eastern countries together, Pakistan, Middle East and Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, Iraq and the UK, as a kind of power base for Britain in the Middle East. NASA takes this as a huge kind of... Um, you know, this is a massive insult because they seem to be trying to p- build power in the Middle East around Iraq and not around Egypt, and there's all this kind of big... And he sees this as being um, kind of aimed at him, almost. He's quite egotistical, NASA. Um, Britain and America in this period, even though Britain's very suspicious of NASA, and even though NASA doesn't like Britain, Britain and America are committed to funding the Aswan Dam in Britain, in Egypt, sorry. Um, and they commit to funding it with quite a lot of money. Uh, and then, essentially, the kind of spark for creating the Suez Crisis is that they stop that funding, they withdraw that funding. And the reason that they withdraw that funding is because NASA uh, has got himself into this position where he's asking for help from Britain and America, suddenly realises it doesn't make him look massively anti-Western or independent, and so decides to uh, also start trading with China, the USSR, and then Czechoslovakia, which is the real kind of straw that breaks the camel's back. He agrees a cotton-for-arms deal with Czechoslovakia. So he will sell them cotton and they will sell him arms. Um, America was kind of turning a blind eye to some of this stuff to start with, but this is really blatant, very obvious, Mm -hmm. um, and it's quite clear that NASA as a kind of proponent of the non-aligned movement in the Cold War, is trying to play off every side against everyone else. America essentially gets fed up with it. They withdraw their funding. Britain withdraws their funding. And so NASA's response to this is to nationalise the Suez Canal in order to raise the money to build the Aswan Dam. This is what he says he's doing. Right, I see. And so he's he's nationalising it to get a sense of independence to his people and show distance from but it's also to piss everyone else off absolutely it is i mean on one hand financially it kind of makes sense it actually does kind of make sense the suez canal is incredibly profitable for whoever controls it um because so many ships need to go in and out of it two-thirds of all of the oil for western europe goes through the suez canal at this point um, so, so, so the money is basically the, the, the charge for traversing up and down it. The tolls. Right. It, it's incredibly profitable for whoever owns the canal. So when national, NASA nationalises it, he, it's on the 26th of July, 1956. He does this by giving a speech in which he says 13 times the name Ferdinand de Lesseps, who's the engineer who built the canal, and this is like a code and Egyptian forces go and take take back the canal. <laughs> uh, Britain's obviously kind of withdrawn their troops, so it's massively thera- theatrical. Every point of this is ridiculous. Um, Anthony Eden at that point is having dinner with the king of Iraq, um, who tells him that he has to absolutely take a hard line against NASA. Um, NASA actually did this completely legally. So it was assumed initially in Britain this was definitely an illegal action and it would be quite easy to kind of control. But it wasn't. It's actually per- it's completely legal um, under the terms of the Suez Canal Agreement for NASA to nationalise it as long as he pays back the shareholders. And he says in his announcement he will pay back the shareholders the price 
of the shares on the close of the Paris Stock Exchange on the day that he makes the announce- announcement. It's all actually completely above board. There's 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 no problem with that. He's he's an, in that actually allowed to do that. But their price is going to fall through the floor after he nationalises it. That is probably one of their concerns. Mm. But, um, <laughs> it is completely legal. And um, so the British initially thinking, well, this is going to be easy and fine to stamp out, then find themselves in a position where it's not going to be easy to stop this. Um, and then we come into why this becomes a crisis and why this becomes so ridiculous and so difficult to understand. So essentially, Eden... He's at dinner with the King of Iraq. Um, he's told you have to stamp out Nasser, you have to sort this out right away. Unfortunately, the United States does not see it like that. The US is not, um, and John Foster Dulles, who is the Secretary of State at this point, are not sympathetic to the idea of a military solution. They don't think that this is something which would be good for the region, and they don't think it's something they want to get involved with. And so uh, Britain is put into this position where they're kind of forced into a very difficult uh, kind of balancing act between what they want and between what their most powerful allies want, who are also a very important power in the region. And so they try a variety of solutions. So um, although actually Britain starts mobilising for war almost as soon as NASA nationalises the canal, they try a variety of different things. So to start with, um, they try to make NASA... Um, renege on the free passage of the canal clause in the Suez Canal Users Agreement. Uh, Basically, whoever controls the canal has to allow passage through it. And they realised that although nationalisation wasn't illegal, if he's unable to allow passage through it, then um, he's going to have to realise he can't manage it and he's going to have to hand it back over. So Britain and France essentially sent all of their ships through the canal all at once, whilst simultaneously withdrawing all of the European pilots who were working on the canal. And they think, well, this is fine, we've got him. Unfortunately, the Egyptians, in some sort of superhuman feat of organisation and engineering, like, kind of get loads of extra pilots and get everyone through. And it's the most ships that have ever been through the Suez Canal in a period of, I think, two days or something. So that's a complete failure and makes the Egyptians look really capable and very, Mm. you know, very well-placed to run the canal. So that doesn't work at all. Was that a media event at that that point? Was it starting to be something that was publicised in Egypt and in the UK or was it just something that the politicians were worried about? Oh, it's a a very big... When NASA nationalises the canal, there's a huge kind of debate in British newspapers about what should happen. Um, It's seen as an act of aggression in Britain. Um, In Egypt, this is seen as... I mean, people when when Britain when Egypt nationalises the canal, people kind of hold rallies supporting NASA and talking about um, imperialism and things. This this sort of period in the mid fifties is a point at which um, what was then referred to as kind of third world nationalist feeling feeling is really really building. So this is a massive. Uh, it's like two fingers up at the West, and everyone's really mm-hmm. supportive of it and thinks it's this incredible thing. And what about when they, when they managed to get all these chips through in, in two days? I mean, I mean now this would be a, a sort of result in YouTube footage within seconds. In I mean, live vlog, didn't it? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, is, is the front page of the Times? Yeah. You know, you stupid government! How can you possibly have? have let this propaganda victory get through. Yeah, unfortunately as well, the British called the operation Operation Pile-Up, somewhat um, kind of optimistically, and it doesn't really work, yeah. Mm. Um, I think so. I mean, actually at this point, the British media is still relatively supportive of the British government not really knowing what to do. Um, There's not 
once the crisis really gets going and the war, mm. then the media really turns against the government. I think at this point they're still very curious as to what's going to happen. I know the Observer writes an editorial saying, don't, don't worry, the British government is not stupid enough to go to war over this. Uh, and then they have to retract it a couple of days later and say, oh, God, no, sorry, we were wrong. They are stupid enough to go to war over this. <laughs> um, so Britain's kind of getting increasingly concerned about this, mostly because they've only got six weeks' worth of oil reserves. Um, oh. So they're really, really worried they're going to run out. In contrast, America is self-sufficient in oil until the 1970s, mm. so they don't really mind so much. Um, Dulles wants to get a kind of a diplomatic solution. Now, Eden really dislikes John Foster Dulles, who's the Secretary of State at this point. He calls him narrow, arrogant and chauvinistic. Uh, Eden, uh, Dulles actually quite liked Eden, but um, it wasn't mutual. So We've all had friends like that. Well, exactly. <laughs> Dulles isn't massively keen on NASA. Um, it's not like they're pro-Egypt in this, but um, they just... All they want to do is pull him away from the the USSR. They don't want to overthrow him. Whereas Eden has become kind of personally obsessed with getting rid of NASA. He says at one point, like, I want to destroy him, I want him murdered, um, to um, Nutting, who's a a British diplomat at the time. Uh, He says, I don't care what happens in Egypt afterwards, I don't care if, you know, what happens to the the state, I want to get rid of him. Um, So Dulles tries to kind of... Dulles tries to trick the British, essentially. He tries to spin out this crisis with these diplomatic solutions of conferences and meetings because he's hoping to get to a point and the invasion happens in July, Operation Pileups in September, he's hoping to get to December when the weather will be too bad to launch an invasion on Egypt and he hopes it will ju- all just sort of blow over um, essentially, actually what happens is that they get to that point, Britain gets tired of this and thinks right we've got to do something and so Britain, France and Israel come up with this ridiculous plan called uh, the Protocol of Sevres and this is what the crisis is. So Britain, France and Israel decide that Israel will invade Egypt. Oh, under They'll just invade Egypt. They don't really need a, a cover to invade Egypt. Um, Britain and France will then uh, tell Israel to withdraw. Israel will refuse and Britain and France will enter as peacekeeping forces. <laughs> Britain and France will then ask both sides to withdraw to 10 miles away from where they're fighting which will helpfully put uh, Egypt withdrawing 10 miles away from their own territory. They actually make this announcement, in when it actually happens, they make the announcement too early and Israel hasn't even got to within 10 miles of the Suez Canal, so <laughs> they, they have to kind of amend it. But they will then go in and take back the canal for its own protection. Uh, Israel, in response, I think Israel gets... Um, Israel gets the entire Egyptian air force destroyed. That's their they're the interested deal. in it. Oh, yeah. um, Israel thinks, at this point, Israel is working on the idea that Egypt was going to invade them in spring of 1957. And so on the 29th of October, 1956, Operation Kadesh, which is named after a Hebrew settlement in, uh, like a Bible settlement in uh, Egypt, is launched, the Israelis invade. Uh, led The paratroopers led by uh, a little-known Israeli called Ariel Sharon, who takes the forces in. They launch attacks on Sinai, in, on the 30th of October, Britain and France send ultimatums to both Egypt and Israel. Egypt refuses because it's their own country. They refuse to stop him fighting an invading force. Um, and then they launch Operation Musketeer on the 31st of October and bomb the Suez Canal. Um, NASA responds by sinking all 40 ships that are currently going through the Suez Canal at the time. So it's ridiculous. I mean, the entire thing is ridiculous. And a lot of the time when, I, when I've spoken to 
to people about this, to students about this, or other historians, the question is often, why did they bother with such an, a patently obvious, ridiculous cover story? Why would you bother with something t- so transparent? Um, so was it obvious at the time that it was just... Oh, yeah, everyone yeah. knew. Okay. Everyone knew that this is what was happening. So um, America is furious because they see themselves as... Britain didn't tell America that this was the plan. So America just finds out one day that uh, Israel has invaded Egypt and then Britain and France have gone in. Now, actually, the CIA knew and told America, but they're still furious. They haven't been told properly. A lot of the reason why they bothered is because of this kind of sense of prestige. Eden really, really wants to continue British power in the Middle East. He uh, really doesn't want Britain to lose any of the prestige that they have. Um, he's also really concerned about having legitimacy, so he thinks this is not as transparent a cover story as it is. Um, he wants UN legitimacy, he wants it to be legal. Um, a lot of people in this have pointed to the fact that Eden was very unwell at this point. He's in constant pain. He had had a gallbladder operation a couple of years earlier, which had gone quite badly wrong. And so he was taking really quite high amounts of Dexamil, which is a combi drug of amphetamines mm. and barbiturates. Um, and sleeping for around four hours a night. So his private secretary said he was genuinely worried about him and thought, to a large extent, that the drugs were causing him to do this. Um, What's quite telling is that people never know the name of the foreign secretary in charge at this point. It was Selwyn Lloyd, but no one ever knows, because it's Eden. It's not the foreign secretary Mm -hmm. who's in charge at this point. It's a kind of one-man show. Um, France gets involved, because it seemed kind of odd at the time that France got involved. They partly get involved because they own half of the canal company but they also get involved because they're fighting a war in Algeria at this point and that Nasser is helping to bankroll and so they think that this will draw attention and stop him from doing that Israel get involved because they're scared of Nasser, they're scared of Egypt um, and also because Israel's very close with France at this point uh, this is the point when France sell Israel the technology to make a or the, the means by which to make a nuclear bomb so Israel and France are incredibly close in this period so that's the only way Britain are able to get Israel involved is through France um, America, as I said, is completely furious, not just because of the kind of it's a big surprise, but also because inadvertently, Dulles having pushed this back and back and back, Britain and France invade right in the middle of the American elections and Eisenhower's running on a peace ticket. <laughs> so they completely dis- they completely kind of screw over any attempt of Eisenhower to... Re- He's trying to run on this, you know, the Cold War's not so bad and I've managed to keep the world all together and everything. Mm. It doesn't work. The other big problem is that when Britain invades Suez, unfortunately it's coincided with the USSR invading Hungary in 1956 to put mm. down the rebellions. And all the world's media is looking at Egypt. And as I say, the USA and the USSR have to work together in the UN to condemn mm. Britain and France, and no-one's able to condemn the USSR. And actually there's a lot of stuff, or there's some kind of historical writing that suggests that Britain, um, the British Secret Service had actually promised help to the Hungarians mm. and then at the point when they need it, they're too busy. And because there's lots of Hungarian testimony saying, yeah, we've been told that if we did mm. this, we'd be helped out and then suddenly we weren't because... We really are making friends in this, aren't we? Essentially, the UN ends up calling for a ceasefire. Mm. Britain and France are forced to withdraw and Britain's left humiliated. There's lots of anti-war protests in Britain um, about Suez. Um, and there's a programme called Free Speech, which I'm pretty sure is what the BBC series The Hour was based on, where AJP Taylor and Michael Foote have an argument with a Conservative MP called Robert Boothby and call him a criminal for supporting the war. Um, And I think that's where The Hour got its second series storyline from, possibly, um, which is what was interesting to me. 
But yes, Britain and France are forced to withdraw from Egypt by the 22nd of December and they're replaced by Colombian and Danish UN forces. The uh, Israel is refuses to leave Sinai or Gaza, which it had invaded both of, until 1957. This is the first point at which Israel invades Gaza. Mm. Um, they don't leave until 1957, um, but then they do. Um, but when they withdraw from Sinai, they destroy all the infrastructure and most of the houses before they leave. So for Israel, it's a... And um, Ben-Gurion makes a speech saying this was a fantastic victory. So Israel do very well out of it. So that's kind of the crisis. <laughs> well, that's kind of filled most of our time. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a, a sort of last question to pull out any of the other residual other issues you had from that? I'll, I'll, I'll cheekily try for a quick answer to my, to my second yeah. question there. Uh, uh, in, a, in a paragraph or two, if, if that's possible... I mean, why does this still matter? That, that's, that's an absolutely fascinating story, but... but. <laughs> um, I, think, I think there's lots of different things that Suez is a, a symbol of, but actually, in reality, it's not, it's not actually a great symbol for any of the things it's a symbol of. So it's seen as, for example, a point of destruction of Anglo-American relations. How could Britain do this behind, behind America's back? And a kind of symbol as well of how weak Britain is compared to America. You know, as soon as America wants to, Britain to stop, they stop Britain from withdrawing money from the IMF. Um, they block British radio signals in the Med, Med and then uh, force Britain to withdraw through the UN. In reality, by the time... Um, so Macmillan succeeds Eden in 1957. By the time he becomes Prime Minister, British-Anglo-American relations are back on track again. Um, and certainly by the time JFK becomes President, they're better than they ever had been. Britain and America negotiate nuclear cooperation in 1957, which they hadn't had since the end of the Second World War. So it doesn't really affect that that much. It's also seen as a symbol of how difficult and dangerous the Middle East is and how difficult it is to get embroiled in all of these scandals and how, how problematic they are. And it's seen sometimes as like the end of Britain's role in the Middle East, or certainly the end of Britain's unilateral role. But in 1961, Britain launched a multi, uh, unilateral action in Kuwait where they sent 30,000 troops to, to do a kind of military action completely separate from the USA very successfully. The Baghdad bad, Ugh, the Baghdad Pact continues. Mm. Um, and Britain um, is able to kind of do loads of things in the Middle East for the, for the next few decades, so it doesn't kind of end that. I think the one thing it's a real symbol for is people see it as the kind of end of Britain's hard power. It's a point of decline. I had a look on Hansard at when Suez is mentioned most, and which is the parliamentary record. In 1967-68 it pops up because there's more issues around the canal and also Britain withdraws all of its military east of Suez. It pops up again over the Falklands War and then there's a real peak from 2001 to 2003 when uh, Blair is warned not to have another Suez in Iraq and where people are concerned about there being another Suez crisis. So it's become this kind of shorthand for either a war without public support or a war without the support of Americans or a kind of feature of British, a lack of British power. But in reality, I think to really care about Suez, you would have to really buy into the idea that British hard power, British military power based on an empire is a kind of good state for Britain to be in. And that since Britain lost the empire and became less important militarily, that signals some sort of decline. 
you need to buy into that idea to think Suez is this huge turning point. And if you don't, if you think that maybe the empire wasn't such a great idea, or you think that actually being active in the UN is more important for British power, then Suez becomes a lot less important. So maybe it's a, another generational thing in that younger people don't quite understand that culture and idea of us ourselves as, as, as English and as British. Yeah. Thank you for um, to maybe to possibly move on from the Suez crisis then. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We, we always ask our guests, finally, is there a question that they have themselves for their field or that they'd like to study about the topic? It might be about Suez, it might be about something completely different, it might be how much you hate your colleagues, <laughs> anything. What, do you have a question for your field that you'd like to either explore or have other people answer? Um. I think the big question in, in my if my field's modern British political history, the big question in my field is about British identity, and mm-hmm. and it relates to what you were saying about maybe this is generational. Um, you know, what? How can we talk about British identity, and how is that historically based? So, what what do we look to in history to to talk about our identity, and how can we trace that idea? That's something I'm really interested in. Great. Well, I look forward to reading stuff that you write about that eventually. And thank you uh, for. I don't know if you made it clearer or just (laughs) helped to sift through some of the intricacies of why it was such a a weird and complex and in some ways ridiculous and awful thing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.